everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Motherkind Podcast, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more community, confidence, clarity, and self-awareness. I believe the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children is to become the most empowered, resilient, authentic versions of ourselves. And this podcast exists to help you do just that. This week's episode is about the importance of being able to process our experiences. From the moment we're born and throughout our lives, one of our biggest wishes is to be heard. In fact, as humans, one of our core needs is to be listened to, to be validated and to be understood. And this episode is about how to process your birth and early motherhood experience so that you feel listened to validated and understood. It is really important. Whatever happened at your birth, childbirth and early parenthood are some of the most transformational experiences as we talk about week in, week out on the podcast you can never go to. But so often we're not given that space, time or the tools to process and reflect and reframe those experiences the pressure to bounce back, to adjust, to just push down any difficult emotions and carry on is immense. And sometimes we just have to do that, don't we? Just to keep going. Well, in this episode, the incredible Illy Morrison is here to help. So Illy is a midwife specializing in postpartum recovery and care. And Illy facilitates birth debriefs where women get to be validated, understood and listened to to take control of their experiences, to feel seen and centered in their pregnancies and births. This episode does come with a trigger warning. We speak about birth, we speak about birth trauma and birth recovery. And if you think that might be hard for you to listen to, just give this episode a miss. Please do trust and listen to yourself around this type of content. This is an incredible episode. I feel so passionately about us mothers needing to process what happened in our births and our postpartum experiences. And I think there is so much gold in this episode. I also think this is going to be one that you're going to want to share because if I think about my friendship group, sadly, the majority of my friends had what they would describe as a traumatic birth. So I know I'll be sending this to all my friends in our WhatsApp groups. And I would really encourage you to do the same with, of course, that trigger warning. If someone thinks it might make it hard for them to hear about birth trauma, then they shouldn't listen. But my sense is that the compassion and the kindness that Illy clearly exudes in this episode and just exudes, it's just who she is. I think it's going to be incredibly helpful. Here it is. Illy, well, I'm so excited that you are here. I had the privilege of reading your book in the last couple of days and I cannot wait. I cannot wait to share the wisdom with the Motherkind audience. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. To hear that is amazing because I think when you've written something and you put it out, I remember someone saying to me, one of their first piece of advice or something was the people that are going to judge you hardest or harshest are your peers. Don't worry so much about your audience. And I was like, oh yeah, that's so true. So when there are people who I respect in their fields who say, nah, this is a really good thing. It's like, oh, of you, of you, because it's so true. Like your peers are like, 
let's see what she's talking about. So I really appreciate it. It's absolutely incredible. And I'm just wondering, for people that don't know you, what sort of brings you to be sat here today? Tell us a bit about yourself. I am, by qualification, a midwife. I qualified about six years ago. And probably from like my first placement, I was like, I am not a clinical midwife. And I had no idea how I was going to carve out a space for myself because I don't know for many people who are listening perhaps you know how it goes in the NHS you often move laterally so it was like how am I going to get out of clinical work into something more specialized I had no idea I was going to do it but I was like at some point you will but usually I thought it's going to take at least five years of clinical working before I ever get there but within two years I'd had my daughter and it was just a really just poor experience That then meant post-maternity leave, I really struggled to go back into a clinical setting. And I had one experience where there was an emergency and I froze. So I was completely triggered by it, froze. And as the midwife, I needed to be able to move. And I must have been frozen for probably about three seconds. But for those who are listening, I'm sure many of you have experienced what it is to be triggered. It feels like a very long time. And the follow on feeling from that trigger was shame and inadequacy and like, you're not okay. Everyone was staring at you. They must think that you're rubbish. You are feeling like you're rubbish. But my biggest thing was when I looked at that woman's face and I was like, I have contributed to your traumatic experience because I could see that she was just freaked. And I was like, I just can't do that. I can't do that to someone. I know what that is. I've experienced it. So I quit my job probably two days later and I was working in London, but I was living in Norwich. So I would bring my daughter on the train in the morning before a shift. I drop her off with my sister-in-law. I go and do an eight hour shift, pick her up, stay the night in London. So I was there for like three days a week and it was actually just too much. Like it was unsustainable. So in the end I quit but this was just before the pandemic. I had an interview for a job at my local hospital, but I just didn't want it. In fact, I'd got the job and I was like, I don't want it. I'm not okay. Did a lot of stuff with working on myself and my own sort of feelings around my birth experience. And then lockdown happened and my husband's Spanish. And two days before lockdown, he said, I just need to go to Spain to do some work things. I said, you're going to get locked down. You're going to get locked down. He was like, no, I'm not. Lo and behold, he was locked down for four months. At that point, I was like, well, I'm going to start an Instagram to just document my experiences. And it just blew up from there. So I started that. I was sharing my story and my experiences and the learning that I had been doing. And after about four months, I was getting so many people sharing their traumatic birth experiences with me because I'd opened up that conversation. They would then share their stories. And I was like, do you know what? Maybe you're actually a bit good at this. I still was broke, had no idea what I was going to do. And so I said, well, I'm just going to offer a listening service. I'm going to offer a debriefing service. And I had maybe two or three bookings in the first few weeks. And then within a month, I had a waiting list of about six weeks. So I think I tapped into a sort of niche that was extremely needed, particularly for those pandemic parents who are just really struggling. And it has just evolved from there. So two and a half years later, that is my business now and the kind of core or what sits at the heart of my book. It's a long story. (laughs) (laughs) It's an incredible story. And yeah, the resilience, gosh, to go through that. And I know you've been through lots subsequently as well. We might get on to 
Tell us about your own birth experience, because I think people assume that when you're a midwife, that you have all the knowledge and that you're going to have this, not necessarily perfect birth that does not exist, but you would certainly have a empowered birth because you do have that knowledge. Tell us your experience and how debriefing has helped. Basically, I had planned a home birth and I had what's known as low pape. It's not anything to be worried about. And for me, when weighing up the risks, I was like, well, actually, I feel like it's manageable, like it's fine. Basically, the risk of low pape is predominantly reduced fetal growth in the third trimester. They wanted me to have extra scans, which I basically moved around. Do as I say, not as I do. But I was like, I don't need these extra scans. Like, you know, it's fine. In one hospital, the numbers were fine. In another hospital, they were just over the threshold. So I was like, it's not anything for me to worry about. So I'd said, I want a home birth. And they were a bit like, what are you doing? And I was resilient. I was like, no, I'm going to have this home birth. So I went into labor and lots of different things happened in that kind of early labor bit that was making me feel a bit like, "Mm, I don't know about this. I basically ended up with a midwife who I just didn't really gel with. And it was nothing against her. It was just that the connection was not there. I began to feel increasingly unsafe. And that feeling just is not a nice one. And I felt very unsupported. Even though my whole family was there, I was just like, no, this isn't okay. My daughter was back to back. And that was rough, man. That was rough. But I was like, you know, it's fine. We can do it. But as the labor was stalling, I was just like, you know what, I need to go in for some pain relief. I've got to go into the hospital. So I went into the hospital and was met with just obstetricians who were just not happy with how I wanted to manage things and were very undermining and kind of belittled me. I remember them saying her heart rate dropped. So I'd worked in a hospital that is renowned for fetal monitoring. So I'd done a lot of training in fetal monitoring and the hospital I was giving birth at wasn't renowned for fetal monitoring. So when I was then strapped to the monitors, which was was kind of going so far from what I wanted, they said, oh, her heart rate's going down like this. And it was the first time that that had happened. They were panicking, the sheer panic. And there was someone just trying to put a cannula in my arm and there's blood going everywhere. And I'm being like, can you just wait a second? That is a terrible vein. That's a terrible, I was completely with it. So I was like, what are you doing? That's the worst place you could put a cannula. Like, what are you doing? But I was extremely dehydrated. If I hadn't been offered water, just hadn't been looked after. Basically, they were like, category one cesarean section, which is a cesarean section under general anesthetic. And I was like, you are definitely not doing that. Like you're not doing that. You're not taking this whole experience from me. And so I said to them, no. And they were like, what? Her heart rate's going to come back up. Just wait. And they waited. And after four minutes, her heart rate came back up. They didn't really wait though. They were like, no, 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 we're going, we're going. And I was like, we're not. Anyway, her heart rate came back up and was absolutely stable from them, but they'd already called for a a cesarean section. I said, fine, we can do a category two cesarean section. Because for me, what was important was that I had some semblance of control. So it was like, you're trying to take this from me and I'm going to try and pull back however I can. So you say category one, well, I'm saying category two. (laughs) And she was born an hour and a half later. So everything was fine up until then. Her head was slightly skew-whiff. And it would have taken a lot of patience and a lot of skill to 
even encourage that change. And I think we're still not particularly well-versed in how to kind of correct asyncriticism. But that's a story for another day. And so, yeah, when she was born, they gave her to me and I was just like, I just don't know what's going on here. Like, I just don't know what is going on. They'd taken her away and then they brought her back wrapped in like two towels. And obviously I know the importance of skin to skin and I knew that I wanted it. But in that moment, I just didn't want it. I was like, what is this? Like, what have you done? And actually that continued, that continued for a good few weeks of just like, what is going on? Breastfeeding was like awful. And it left me feeling extremely battered, to be honest. But in all that, no one ever offered me the opportunity to speak. No one ever offered me a debrief or anything like that because it wasn't deemed traumatic. And that's what led to me doing what I'm doing because for so many people, they don't fall into a traumatized category. And as we know, trauma is a response that happens within an individual. So it's not based on other people's perception of what is traumatic, more about how that person feels. So you can have what's known as a normal low-risk vaginal birth based on someone else's protocols and perception. But for you, that felt deeply traumatic. Well, where do you go with that? Where do you go with that when other women are like, oh my God, well, my friend lost loads and loads of blood and she had a really traumatic experience. Well, then you can't talk about how you felt in what was a low risk experience, supposedly. The hospital aren't offering you anything because they're dealing with real trauma in inverted commas. It meant that there was this whole group of people that were being left with deep, deep feelings and nowhere to put them. And there came the birth debrief. And it's so important, isn't it? It is so important. How would you define if someone has a need to process their birth or perhaps birth trauma? How do we know whether it's something that we need to do? And it can be done years later, even decades later, can't it? How does someone know that that's something that might be beneficial to them? A lot of the time when I'm speaking to people, I'm like, is it bothering you? Is there something bothering you? And sometimes it can be a niggle and it's just like a a little kind of irritation. But other times it can be more deep rooted. It can be sensitivity to noise. It can be kind of a feeling around that baby. It can be hypervigilance or hyperarousal. There's lots of different things where I'm like, is it bothering you, that experience? And because I cover anything from preconception well into the postpartum period, it's like, was anything in your experience bothersome? And that's the first thing I encourage them to explore. Like, are you feeling okay about it? So much of it is based on how people feel rather than what actually happened. Because, and I say this to people and I'm like, I don't want you to take it wrong. I don't actually care about what happened. Like this isn't me needing your clinical notes because I need to see what happened on a clinical level. I want to know what your feelings are around what has happened to you. And so when we start exploring that, it's like, I think I need to talk about this. I think I need to explore it further. And that's usually how we kind of start those conversations. Gabor Mate is one of my favourites in the world of trauma. And he says, it's not what happens to you. It's how you experienced and how supported you were and what happens to you. So what I'm hearing you say is that even if you had, quote unquote, a non-eventful birth, you can still be carrying trauma from that, couldn't you? If you felt unsupported or unsafe. Exactly. If someone's listening, is there anything that they can do themselves to start to unpack this? Because someone might be listening and it might be really triggering, actually. They might be thinking, I just don't want to go there. I just don't want to open that box. You must hear that a lot. All the time. 
so for me, it's like the closed box is often scarier than what's inside that box. As the box is closed, you're like, this is huge. This is massive. This is massive. And And as you distance yourself from it through time, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. It's not going away. It's just there. It's this box that's like, oh my gosh, this scary box I can't open. And I often will say to people, find a supportive space, a safe supportive space. And it can be by yourself, but often it's with someone else. And just just take a peek. Just take a peek. Because a lot of the time what we think is that we open the box and everything comes flying out. But it's like, actually, this is often coming from this sense of how out of control you felt. And so you think that everything is going to jump out of this box and it's all going to spill out and you're not going to know what to do. Whereas actually you are in control of this and you can allow yourself to go, right, let's look at this little bit. Let's just see. I always say, you know, if it feels huge, I encourage you to be supported in it, to have somewhere to put that. But if it just feels like it's a bit of an overwhelming box or like, you know, just a bit, I'm not sure about it, have a pen and paper. Just write down a few of those things that are coming out. But even before all of that, write down your feelings. Write down what you're feeling. Write down what's coming up for you. Get it out of your head and onto paper. There's such power in taking things from your head because then you can sometimes see they're not as big as they felt. Or you can say, I can order this. I can kind of create a bit of structure around it. But also I can see where my trigger points are. I can see where I'm bothered. I can see where I'm affected. So my first thing is get it out of your head in a controlled manner that feels safe to you. It could be just one thing. And you say, I'm just going to look into one conversation that I'd had with an obstetric team and how that made me feel. And gradually you take control and you say, and now I want to look at this bit and I want to look at this bit while also normalizing the fact that you might cry, you might cry, you might feel a little bit stressed. And, you know, people say to me all the time, I'm just going to cry. And I'm like, good, good cry. It's fine. We need to cry. Crying is really healthy. And in supported spaces, when we cry and we're held, you often don't cry as much as you think you're going to cry, but you just need to get that big kind of frog in your throat out and keep it moving. So thinking about that experience you had with your first birth, would you say you had trauma from that? I would say that it was an experience that I I deemed deeply unsatisfactory and also out of control. It felt chaotic and left me with feelings of trauma, but I wasn't traumatized. When you debriefed your own birth, how do you look at it differently now? Because what I want to give is a sense of the benefit of doing this, because I can almost hear the resistance (laughs) to the listeners. Like, Zoe Illy, this is great, but I am busy from 6am to 9pm. Like, I know that I think about my birth, I feel uncomfortable. I I just don't want to look at it. So can you paint that picture of now when you look back at it, having unpacked it, worked on it, processed it, the benefits to you of having done that? Basically, when I looked back, so what you're often left with after these experiences, particularly ones that aren't necessarily deeply traumatic for you, where people can empathize and show you compassion, but where you're isolated in it, you're left with feelings of shame and feelings of guilt and a lot of, I did this. And so part of what I first started to do was like, well, did I? did I? What was I actually in control of? And I started to look at the things that I was in control of and how I responded to those. And then the things that I wasn't in control of. And I was like, oh, okay, 
now we're talking now this is starting to make more sense because i'd done a huge pile on like you know you did this and you did that and if you'd have said and if you could have and obviously the midwife in me knows better the rational midwife in me knows that actually in those settings because of our issues as a society with authority figures we'll often be like oh yeah okay okay fine okay fine you know I'll just give in or you know and then if you add the extra layer of being qualified or whatever and being supposedly having lived it on the other side you know how you should behave to get the outcome that you want and so it was very much like I could see that I'd been kind of pushed into a bit of a corner and once I started to go well that wasn't your fault well you couldn't have done anything about that and then looking at the things that I did do like saying no we're not doing a category one section I was like yes sister like you did the damn thing like that's what you wanted for yourself and looking at how I could gather that control was the first thing that I did so it's a lot of reframing on how things you feel they are inwardly and then going hold on hold on hold on let's just look at what this actually was and then as I kind of went past that bit it was allocating blame and accountability so it was like for the people that made me feel embarrassed, for the people that didn't look after me appropriately, for the people that had no faith in me and made it very obvious for the lack of support. It was like, okay, once I started to allocate that out, it was like, yeah, you need to be held accountable for all of these things as well. That's not on me. That's not for me to carry. So it's like next step. Great. And then came the kind of normalization of things. Can I just ask you a question on that step, Hilly? Did you experience an anger and what did you do with that anger? I experienced an anger. I was literally just like, look what you did to me. Look what you did to me. And I, I, I allowed myself that anger. Like I was like, that's fine. Anger's fine. Anger's good. I'm going to use this as a tool. And I'll tell you how I've used it as a tool in a minute. So there was definitely anger. There was remorse. It's like a bit of a grief cycle that you go through because for me, that experience, I experienced a grief of a loss of hope the expectation of that experience that I thought I was going to have, all of those things were taken away through no control of my own. So then that kind of last issue, yeah, allocating that blame appropriately and then normalizing things. So normalizing my own response to my child. So normalizing the noise sensitivity that her cry to this day, she's four years old, her cry still makes me feel quite uncomfortable. Normalizing the fact that I didn't feel this immense sense of love and humanizing myself being like, well, duh, you've just been through a massive thing and you've been handed this stranger and everyone's like, well, now that's it. No one's validating how you're feeling. So it's like, okay. And if you'd have looked at me on the outside, you'd have thought this girl is is okay. (laughs) Definitely not. I normalized that. I shed the guilt of not loving her in the way that I'd supposedly thought I was going to and allowing it to be like a slow burner it's it's incredible because it just grows and grows and grows but only if you kind of say what's well, fine it's fine I'm just gonna wait for that to happen and encourage it to happen so really kind of showing myself a lot of grace having those conversations that we aren't encouraged to have in antenatal education about normal postnatal feelings so it's like yeah you might not love them straight away in the way that you do now you don't know them necessarily you know and you you aren't just a vessel to bring a baby here you have feelings and so you have to be like oh actually I did experience the thing like I've gone through something and really validating that that's what 
we do a lot of work on in debrief. So the validation, the accountability, the reframe, and then the positive reinforcement. So we always look at what you did do. And a lot of people had never, ever looked at that because they don't have the clinical experience or knowledge. They don't even know what they did do that benefited them. I always think that's incredible, you know, that some of my friends have been through really traumatic births and they're still there, you know, awake every hour trying to get the breastfeeding right. And it's just mind blowing to me that having gone through something that horrendous, there's no part of them. Well, maybe there is, but that is just wants to walk away. They're still there, like showing up. And I think so often we just can't see that. And it's not just birth, actually, it's just mothers in general. We just cannot see the power and how incredible that is that we just keep as best we can showing up. And it's not our fault. We are unsupported. We only have to look at the language in birth and we'll come on to that because I think that's really important. I wanted to ask you about this instant connection. And with all the debriefs that you've done, have you seen a link between challenging births or long births or traumatic births and people saying, actually, I didn't feel that rush of love. It did take months or years. Is there a correlation there that you see? Because I think that could help take guilt and shame away from people. Because in my experience, I had that with Jesse. It was a good birth, but it was very long. I was very, very, very tired. It was 37 hours and I didn't have that rush of love. And with my second, it was quick. I loved it. And I did have that instant. And I'm wondering, do you see that more universally? Yeah, all the time. And it's one of those biggest sources of guilt for people because they're like, I should have loved them. You know, a lot of the time I say to them, they come to me between sort of six months and two years predominantly. And I'm like, no, but just remember, contextualize what you're talking about. We're not talking about like if I say it for myself, like I'm not talking about the Ihsan that I know and love now. That's a person I know. I've raised this child. I've had this time to develop this thing with her and it's beautiful and amazing and whatever. But that one that they just handed me, who in actual fact, I didn't know, but also was the root cause of what I've experienced. And it's like, why do we think that we can't wait for this thing to develop. Why do we think that we'll immediately love this thing that's had us going through like the trenches? Why do we only apply that to childbirth? And it's the romanticization of it all. You know, why are we still so fixated on this idea that mothers love mothering and we just love babies and we just love it all? And, you know, it's dictated to us all the time what it should be, which then silences us when it is what it is. Yeah, well, you feel shame, don't you? And I was so lucky because our mutual friend, Holly, was my hypnobirth teacher, Holly DeCruz, and she said that in the hypnobirth course I did with her, you might not get that instant rush of love. And I, I will forever be indebted for her for saying that because I didn't experience the shame then when I didn't get it. I thought, okay, I just must be one of those women that Holly said was normal. But I can imagine if I hadn't been told that, the shame that you say... Because you assume, don't you? You assume that's what's going to happen. But also everyone comes to you and they're like, oh my gosh, I bet it was lovely. Oh, they're so lovely. Oh my gosh. And you're just like... Yeah, you must be so in love. You must be so in love. <laughs> I know. It's like, <laughs> shh, shh. Like, you know, we are seen as we're just supposed to bring these babies here at the cost of everything in ourselves. So, you know, our mental health, our physical health, our emotional health, you know, you better just do it. This is what you're made to do. And then you do it and it's like everyone sort of forgets you. 
everyone forgets you. Because there's that phrase, isn't it? You know, and I, I'm sure you've heard mothers say this to you. Well, you know, all that matters is that the baby's safe. All that matters is that the baby's safe. Where does that come from, that phrase, all that thinking, do you think? I would say it goes back to that romanticization of it all and the sort of sacrificial martyrdom that supposedly I believe was fed by the patriarchal society that we live in, that that's what we should be doing. You know, that's how we should be feeling because really all that matters is not a healthy baby. Like all that matters is that you are both safe. Now, obviously we know that most of us would sacrifice ourselves for our children. We do know this. But what it doesn't mean, and a lot of the time in the context that people are talking about that in, it's not a life or death thing. You know, it's not a life or death. They're just talking about it as like, yeah, you know, just have that vaginal examination because it's to check if baby's safe, even though you're feeling like, I don't actually want to have that vaginal examination. Like for me as a person, that doesn't feel safe. You're kind of gaslit into being like, well, it's the only way to ensure baby's safe. And then we hear that kind of like, oh, well, I'm irresponsible and I'm careless. If I don't do that, I'm a bad mum. And obviously no one ever wants to be called a bad mum. So it's like, oh, crap. Like, okay, well, I'm just going to give this bit of myself then. You know, I don't matter. And if we continue to feed that I don't matter, what ends up happening is that we raise children with this kind of underlying hum of resentment. We lose ourselves in it because we do matter. We have to matter. How do we raise subsequent generations of children if we don't matter? This is why I'm like to people, you need to come and speak about this experience so that you can find joy, so that you can find joy in your parenting experience, so that you can form that relationship with your child, so that you can actually take that hour and just talk about yourself outside of the context of your baby. How many times do people say, how are you? And you say, yeah, baby's not sleeping or baby's whatever it's like. No, but how are you? How are you as an individual? And, you know, that's what so much of the focus is in debriefs. It's like, are you okay? How was this experience for you? How did you live it? How did you feel it? Because that's the first thing we need to do. And then we can talk about the baby if you want to, but it's not the primary focus in that setting. And actually in our lives, we have to make sure that we are primarily caring for ourselves in order to care for our children. Think about this new matter. And as you know, that's really core to mother kind, you know, new matter. What can someone do or is there anything that we can do to have that sense of I matter as you go through the birthing experience for someone who might be wanting to do it again or someone who's listening who might be pregnant for the first time? Is there anything we can do to trauma proof, I guess? So you actively and like with full intention, ask yourself about yourself. How am I? What do I want? What do I need? So you keep asking yourself this. You're constantly putting yourself in the center a lot of the time. And a lot of the trauma comes from where people have been decentered from their experiences. They essentially being pulled along. And this is for a lot of people where they've had normal, normal births, normal experiences, whatever. But they're like, I felt out of control. This felt chaotic and they've been completely decentered and they're being told that everything is happening to them rather than with them. So the key here is bringing yourself back into the center and going, right, okay, I know how I want to feel. I know how I want to be spoken to. I know how I need my needs to be met. Cool. Now, how can we apply this to the birth that I want and the birth that I'm going to have? 
So, you know, with my subsequent birth, it was so different. It was so, so different because I did that. I put myself at the center and I maintained my position at the center because it wasn't going to be taken from me again. How did you do that? For my subsequent birth, so previous cesarean section, I was like, I'm having this baby at home. That's it. I'm having this baby at home. And that went against hospital guidelines because of the risk of scar rupture, which for me felt very low. It wasn't something that had factored in. It was three and a half years later. I'd had no issues with my scar. It didn't bother me too much. And I was 10 minutes from the hospital in an ambulance. So it was like, no, that feels fine. That felt safe. And I would advise you when thinking about subsequent birth is what feels safe to me? That will look different for lots of different people. Yeah, because some people would want to be in the hospital. Exactly. They'd be like categorically no. Whereas I had looked at what felt safe for me and on every level, emotionally, mentally, physically, clinically, that felt safest to me. So obviously I have to be sensible. And so had to have my threshold, which was you will never induce me. I will never be on a ward. If this birth is not going the way that I want it to, I'm going straight to hospital and straight to theatre. We will do what is classified as essentially like an elective emergency cesarean section. I'm not going to meet anyone in the middle anywhere. That felt safe. That felt sensible. So, you know, I pushed forward with this and I had the consultant like, Illy, do you know? I was like, I do know. And the second time she spoke to me, she was like, should I go through all of the risks with you again? You already know, don't you? I was like, I do know. Like, it's fine. So it was always about, will my baby be safe in this? Yes. Will I be safe in this? Yes. Okay, let's go. I had a doula. I'd already decided that my husband wasn't going to be with me because again, for those reasons, does it feel safe? Does it feel like he can advocate for you? He didn't really want to be there. I didn't want him there. I mean, it was the best decision I could have made. And I'd already said to my sister, you're going to be with me, obviously. And we lived together, so it was perfect. And basically, I'd hired a doula, one that I really rate. And when I was six months pregnant, my mum passed away just very suddenly. One of our family friends in South Africa is a doula. And we'd kind of been discussing her coming, but then we're like, do you know what? Actually, let's not risk it. It's fine. But after mum died, we were both kind of like, no, you need to be here. So she came and she was with me as well. So I'd kind of really curated my team. I knew what I wanted. I was like, no, we're going to make sure that this happens. I knew that if the midwife wasn't working for me, I would just say to her, like, it's just not working. Like, you know, everything kind of was very clear to me as to what I was going to do to get this birth. And what had happened with Ihsan was that she was asynclitic. So I'd done a lot of work in my subsequent pregnancy with a Cairo. And I was like, let's talk about my pelvis because the body has lots of moving parts. Like surely we don't resign ourselves to just, oh, well, this is just what happens. So I'd accepted the fact that my baby could be back to back and that just might be how my babies go into my pelvis and that it wasn't a complete write-off. That's okay. But also that I knew that I had done all the work so that if they were asynclitic again, it was nothing that I could have done. And that was important to me to know that I had just kind of gone, right, you need to know that you've done everything. So when I went into labor, my husband and my brother-in-law took the kids to my dad's house. So I was here by myself and it was all fine. It was going, you know, whatever, fine. And I called the midwives. They came over and she said to me, I said, just watch how you speak to me. Not in a rude way, but like as in, just don't tell me 
numbers and things like that. Like I don't need anything that's going to set me back because I feel like I'm onto a good thing. And she was absolutely incredible. And she examined me and I said, you can examine me now. Like I'm going to say when we can do this. And she examined me and she said, well, the cervix admits two fingertips like this. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Perfect. I can deal with that. That's not giving me numbers because so many people come to me and they say, I was just three centimeters. I was just, it's like, it admits two fingertips. That means it's open. That's great. Let's keep going. After that, basically long story short, I then went to, I went into the pool, which I'd set up, but I absolutely hate water, but I thought, well, this is what people do. Let's see if I like it hated it, but in the pool transitioned. And as I was transitioning, that was within half an hour. As I was transitioning, I was screaming out for my mum, And so I knew that I was transitioning. I was like, something is happening in my body. And it meant that I was able to ground myself because I was like, I know that this isn't my normal response. Something's happening. So I got out of the pool, went upstairs, whatever. Anyway, turns out this baby was also back to back. So I'm getting all these contractions, but I was like, we're fine. The midwife stayed downstairs. I was in this room with my doula and my sister. And so if I could tell you, I think I was the most elastic I've ever been. Like my leg was up, down to the side. Like I was getting in all positions because I had the freedom to move, which I didn't have in my first birth. And I started pushing and she was like, okay, let me just examine you. She examined me and she goes, you did it. She goes, you did it. This baby has turned and he was in the perfect position and he was coming down. And honestly, she was like, can you stop pushing for a minute and just see if you can just ride those contractions and let baby come down. She then left the room. Incredible. I wasn't watched. I was like, it's fine. I'm safe. It's okay. Anyway. So I stopped pushing and then after about half an hour, she came back up and she goes, Oh, things are sounding a little bit. And I was on my hands and knees and I basically threw my body backwards with a bit of a roar. Then I put my hands between my legs and I went, there's a head there. And she went, there's a what? I said, I'm holding the baby's head. And in that moment, he came and my husband just came down the stairs and he saw, so he was in the house, but I just held this baby and I didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. And I was like, it's a boy. Like, oh my God, it's a boy. Anyway, so all that happened, took this baby. I had him on my chest. It was absolutely incredible. I had toast, had tea. And the midwife was like, oh, I might need to transfer you in for suturing. I was like, I've just done all of this. I'm not going anywhere. So I called my other sister. I had her on FaceTime while I was being sutured. Anyway, I'm in the same room that I gave birth. This is why I keep pointing. But like, I went and I sat down in this chair and I held him and it's this calm, beautiful little boy. And I held him and just above me on the shelf was a photo of my mum. I hadn't put that there. None of us had put it there. And my daughter had had it like four days before and my husband had just put it high up so she couldn't get it. So just where I was birthing, it was essentially like she was looking over me right in line with where he was born was this photo of my mum. And I was like, it all happened. You know, it's all come together, full circle. So that's how I centered myself, fought for what I wanted and created the right people and right energy around me. And that's what I advise people to do. I'm so sorry for that long story. I think most mothers, well, actually, I don't know. I was going to say most mothers love a positive birth story, but actually that's not true because it can be very 
triggering, can't it? But what I can hear in that story is that you talk about these superpowers of assertiveness, intuition, boundaries, and I can hear all of that in that story. Obviously, it's easy for someone to think, well, Illy's a midwife and she could advocate for herself in those ways. How do you help people advocate for themselves in a way who have, you know, not the time to do the research, you know, that and a professional background? How does someone get that level of assertiveness with their needs when essentially you're on the back foot a bit, aren't you? Well, you can feel like that. The way in which you can do this is basically by saying, hold on, what do I need? And it sounds so simple, but it's over and over again. You ask yourself, what do I need? What do I need? What do I need? And then if you're with a a team, an obstetric team or whatever, you ask them, how can I get this? And it doesn't have to be tell, read, whatever. It's like, this is what my needs are. How can I get this? And when you shut out all the noise and you say, right, well, my needs are to be heard, to be supported, to be cared for. It's like, well, they're actually quite simple because nine times out of 10, we don't actually mind how our babies come into the world. We might want vaginal births. We might want cesareans. We might want these things. But actually, in this case, the safe baby and healthy baby is what's paramount. So what we care about is how we are treated in order to get there. What happens when we're on that journey? So it's like, okay, I know that in order to feel okay about this, I need to feel like I was able to make my decisions. I need to feel like I was heard and supported. It might be that you get a doula. It might be that you have these conversations with your partner so that they are prepared to be that voice should you need it. And that is one of the most important things I say to people. We can't expect someone to just know. And we also can't just choose people based on love and affection. This person has a job to do. They're there to give you your voice or to use theirs. And if they can't do that, then they aren't the right person to be in that space. And this might mean some awkward conversations and people looking at you sideways, but it doesn't matter. That's where it comes back to that centering of yourself. Because if you put someone in that space that is not able to support you adequately, for what? For their feelings. Well, then what happens when they then don't meet you where you need to be met? What's well, only you that let them be there? So it's like, well, then you're then left feeling with that like, guilt and like you're silly and that like, you made those choices. So it's like, no, actually, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm going to speak to my partner and say, can you show up for me in the way that you need to show up for me? Because I need this, 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 and this. And that needs to be an honest, really kind of like heartfelt conversation because it matters. It's important. For me, it was like, what, you think just because you're the father of this child, you get to then be there? Oh, no. (laughs) You need to be more than that. You need to be more than that because that's not sufficient to guarantee that you will speak up for me when I need you to. So when my husband was like, do you know what? And also because his English isn't his first language, he was like, all this stuff makes me nervous. It makes me uncomfortable. And I knew that I would then be looking at him being like, you look so uncomfortable. So I was like, scrap that. It's not happening. I encourage everyone to have those conversations. So that's how you do it. You look at your team, you speak to them, you look at your needs, and they're often not that complex. So then once you've done that, you'll be able to say, well, who can adequately help me to achieve this goal? And if they're not serving me, then I need to reassess. That's what I encourage people to do, which is why debriefing those feelings will help you tune into what the needs are. And then we go forward. And what about groups of women in society? We know the horrific statistics around 
you know, black and brown birthing women around LGBTQ+. How do those impact on the birthing experience? And do, if you're in a group where you feel like you might be put at extra risk, is there any extra prep that they need to do from that perspective is what I'm asking. So what you're not going to be able to do is change a lot of these issues that are systemic. You are one person or one group, but you are fighting essentially a losing battle in that sense. So don't even try and take on that task. Bring it right back down to you what the risk is to you. So me as a black woman, I knew that my risk was dying in childbirth and it was increased fourfold compared to my white counterpart. So that was a risk that was applicable to me. And I knew what increased that risk. And that was where perhaps you're not taken seriously when it comes to pain. So I knew that I was going to make sure that I was going to communicate my response to pain But also I was going to double down if I was feeling like I wasn't going to be heard. And then I was going to have an advocate with me to ensure that we are going to be heard in this situation. So it was like, I'm equipping myself with everything that I will need and I will have to take responsibility. Is it fair? Is it fair that that's how I have to go into my birth experience? No. But is it what it is? Yes. And do I matter? And does my baby matter enough for me to then be like, right, fine, it's not fair, but I'm going to do what I need to do. So In this case, it was like, for me, hospitals don't feel safe based on previous experience, but also as a black woman, they didn't feel like a safe place. My home did. My home, where I'm in charge, where I know where my safe places are. That was important. And so I placed myself there. Think about those things for you. If you are someone who has an increased risk, what makes you feel safer? What are those risks? How can you mitigate against them? That is what you need to do in order to protect yourself. And I'm just hearing that word like empowerment through everything that you're saying is how can you see things as they are and empower yourself around that? And it's just such a needed, it is so needed, these conversations. They really are. I'm not going to empower you. You're empowering yourself. And in order to empower yourself, you have to take responsibility for who you are, what your needs are, where you're going to be, who's going to be surrounding you. That is your responsibility. And I know post-traumatic or out of control experience, it can feel like you no longer have the capacity, but also you're awaiting the permission to be like, you can take control. Well, if you take nothing else from this podcast, take that, that the control is yours to have. You can take control. And when you take control, you'll be liberated. And it might feel scary, but it's practice. And you continue and you continue and you continue. And you might be uncomfortable, but it's okay. You push through that because actually no one else will remember your experience or remember even you, but you will. And so what memories do you want to have? Yes, it's so true, isn't it? What a powerful place and a powerful thought to end on. And as you know, because I know you listen to the podcast, I always ask the same question at the end, which is, if you could give one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Okay, so I guess I should say my book, but like, I'm not going to, (laughs) but get my book. You can definitely (laughs) say that. That would be a very empowered thing to say. (laughs) Do you know, the thing is, what I would give to every mother is someone in their corner, is someone to be fully immersed in their corner. Because when you have that, it gives you that power to go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like, it's like if you're in a fight or something and, and someone's behind you going, yeah, 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 you've got this. And you're like, yeah, I do. 
We all need that. That is throughout parenting, through our decisions that we're making, through the experiences we're having, through the things that we're exposed to, to have someone who has your full best interest, who encourages you to advocate for yourself, but also advocates for you should you need it. I wish that everyone had that. And that often comes from that kind of concept of a village and, you know, community, which I think we all need. So find the people to stay in your corner because they will make things easier for you. Incredible. Thank you so much. Where can someone get a debrief with you or just learn more about your work or get the book? You can find me on at Mixing Up Motherhood and my website is linked there. And if you wanted to book a session with me, what I will say is sessions with me are £85 an hour. However, I don't think that finances should get in the way of accessing support. So I have a paid forward option where people have very kindly donated sessions and I myself donate sessions for those who cannot access support or don't have the financial means. And if you are someone who's like, I really need this, but right now I'm not in a position to pay for it. Please just email me. You never have to explain. I don't need any justification for why you need it. You also don't need to promise to pay it back or anything like that. It's yours to serve you. And if you are in need of it, you will be served it. So, you know, it's all based on honesty, but if you aren't in need in it, it won't serve you. So don't bother taking it if you don't need it. Oh, well, we'll donate five pay it forward sessions for anyone listening to this podcast that wants to use those. Wicked. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to share before we close? My book is my third baby. It's my third baby, but it is written from my heart and it's written with the experiences of so many. And it is something that I believe will hold so many of you in your experiences through trauma, through subsequent birth, through motherhood. If I could gift one to everyone to just feel that they have those pages to support them. And I am saying this with my whole chest because it is something I'm so deeply proud of. I encourage you, I encourage you to get it, to borrow it. If you've got a friend who's got it, to get it as your free book on Audible, to get it wherever you could get it. Oh, that's my doorbell. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a good place to end. (laughs) (laughs) Wicked. There we go. That's what what I was going to say. well, (laughs) Well, thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 